Hi, welcome to Disrupt. Today we have on Marisol Maddox, who is an Arctic analyst at the Polar Institute of the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, DC. She's also a non-resident research fellow at the Center for Climate and Security, a member of Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative, and a part-time master's student at George Mason University studying international security with a focus on transnational threats. Marisol's research considers an array of topics related to the security implications of actorless threats, such as climate change and biodiversity loss, with a regional focus on the Arctic. She is interested in the way that actorless threats challenge conventional ways of thinking about security and the geopolitics of the Anthropocene. Marisol received her bachelor's degree in environmental studies with a concentration in ecosystems from Binghamton University in 2009. She has spent over a decade studying ecology, organic regenerative agriculture, and resilient system design, and now combines that background with the security field to foster policies that focus on long-term stability. We're really excited for you to listen to our conversation. It's gonna be great. So we're curious, you have like this really interesting um, work history kind of a part in all these think tanks and different professional capacities. And do you find yourself using theory at all in those places? Yeah, well, I think that the, the way that theory plays in is really guides the way that I, how I make sense of the world, right? And, and how I think about problem solving or even like identifying the problem in the first place, if you're not really very careful about that process and you go straight to solutions, sometimes you're missing something. And so that's where I think that, um, you know, that theory does play in. And then obviously in terms of just understanding the thinking of other countries and, um, you know, kind of because of the cultural differences um, and not like I've learned about this concept called mirroring, which they teach in intelligence. And it's basically this idea that you can, you can be like, have a tendency to project your way of thinking onto others and assume that they would rationalize something in the same way, which can be very dangerous and, and not really helpful to really understanding the way that they think about things. I feel like that speaks a lot to what we talk about in terms of like the coloniality of knowledge and how um, Western ideas or norms are often just implicitly imposed on other people um, all the time. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, and it's been interesting because I guess I've always just been a very naturally curious person and really interested in, in just talking to people from different backgrounds and different cultures who have been raised to have different worldviews and just understanding why they, they see the world the way that they do or, or how they think about things. And so I guess I kind of have that natural anthropological brain in that way. And so that was what led me um, in my 20s to really just being interested in traveling and working on a bunch of like farms and ranches all over the US to kind of just get a sense for like, you know, what are people talking about and what, 
what matters, you know, to the people of these different communities and the United States alone is just so incredibly diverse. Um, and, and that's actually been a really, really valuable for just the dynamics that we've seen with the populism that led to Trump's election. And um, even, you know, like somebody like Rush Limbaugh, he was able to be so compelling and such a powerful figure because he identified a group of people who felt like they weren't heard and weren't seen. And, and that, and it led him to be just, you know, incredibly influential. And I think that there are certain things that we've seen domestically that are really opportunities for us to grow and, and just be more inclusive in, in, you know, recognizing, I mean, I, I think it really does tie in with the colonial, the decolonial theory and um, indigenous theory. Those are the ones that really stood out to me um, in, in like listening to your podcast so far. Um, and, and I, so I hadn't come at it from an academic perspective. I hadn't even known those were like actual theories before you invited me here. Um, but the more I've read that about those, um, the more I've realized that some of the people who have been very influential in the way that I think about things, um, do fit into those ways of those types of theories, I guess. Since you come from more of a practitioner background and you're um, like learning these theories differently from how we learn them, I know in my personal experience, I learned the theories first and then it was like, okay, how do you apply these um, to real life situations? When you were reading about these theories, was there anything you noticed or caught yourself thinking about that was like, oh, these theories miss, miss some things about what being a practitioner is ac actually like? Um, well, and so, so it's interesting because the way that I learned the theory was like a much more traditional IR lens, right? Like realism, liberalism. Um, we spent probably two minutes on feminism and, and but it was in a very like dismissive kind of way. Um, and so I guess, and, and all of these that I would listen to, I was just like, they're so problematic because they're not, I don't think that they account well for things like populism, which recognize the importance of individuals, not just state actors, but large populations of people who don't feel heard or seen. Um, but then I guess, I think one of the challenges with you know, the other, some of the other theories that, that you've discussed that I do find really helpful, um, like indigenous theory and decolonial theory. I think that the, the difficult part coming from a practitioner standpoint is, okay, yes, you're right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, basically things started to get really off track about I don't know, like 10,000 years ago when we established agriculture and stopped, you know, these, just our whole relationship with the land changed. And so, you know, we obviously, we can't go back to that, uh, like a nomadic lifestyle. So I guess I think 
the difficult thing is trying to reconcile the reality of the state-based system that we have that's very much ruled by treaties and international law, reconciling that with, you know, different movements like, you know, land back and all, and all of that, like how, how do you kind of fit these together? And um, so I think that, I think it's really important to, for the grassroots community to understand the reality of what policymakers are dealing with and to try to basically, if you can like target specific things that are reasonable given the constraints that, that are existing and just some of the, the reality of some of those sensitivities and of, you know, just what it means to be working with all these different countries and different ideas, like how, you know, very, if you can make like a targeted recommendation, then that's really helpful for bridging the two. Do you think that maybe more dialogue or more transparency? Um, Cause I think, and you said this really well, but there's just honestly this lack of communication sometimes between people that take a decolonial approach versus, you know, someone who works in the state department who isn't really thinking about, you know, colonial legacies all that much. Apart from dialogue, do you think that there are other ways or have you brainstormed some ideas from your own experience as a practitioner? Yeah, actually. Um, so, I, you know, I had not, been, I, I was really involved in politics in high school and I was really, I thought it was like really interesting and I uh, was really involved. And then I got kind of j a little bit jaded from the process of just kind of, you kind of realize how decision-making is made is not necessarily based off of what's the right, you know, always the right decision, um, other, other influencing factors. But, but then I was much more really at the grassroots level, you know, like, work, you know, working on farms, I took a permaculture design course um, for, a, it was like a month residential, just getting to learn about systems thinking. And um, so I was really not at the government level for like a long time uh, where I was really just like, you know, working at the community level. And what I realized from that was there are so many wonderful people who are activists who stay at the like NGO level um, or like at the grassroots level. And what, it, what really spurred me to kind of shift my approach was thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool if there were people in like defense department and state department who had taken a permaculture design course or had like learned about regenerative agriculture and had come from that background and then bringing that are able to bring a totally different perspective to these issues. And so it was, I was thinking about that and then I was like, well, I should do that. <laughs> and so, so that was when I decided, okay, I'm going to go to grad school in, I want to do some kind of like hard security degree so I could bring my undergrad degree in environmental studies and all this stuff I had learned over the years around regenerative agriculture and uh, like ecosystem health and ecology and bring all that and then have this formal education in, in sec security issues so that I can a, understand the way that the, the defense and security communities think, 
and then also B, to understand the language that they use, because I think that that's a really important component is sometimes there are natural allies across different sectors, but they use different language. And so in some ways, it's like they won't understand each other. And so one of the things that I'm really interested in trying to do is to help to use language and, and climate change is a great example of this, of you know, what is language around climate that can be used to convey why it should matter to Department of Defense and, and even doing that under the Trump administration um, it, where it's really you, you know, important to be able to articulate why this matters in a way that's completely separate from any type of uh, you know, partisan rhetoric or ideology and just, but, but I think having that, that language so that it resonates with people can make them a lot more willing to have a dialogue. And then also it gives you opportunity to maybe introduce something that makes them curious. But if you sounded totally different, they'd just be like, okay, you're like, you, you know, kind of write you off as some, somebody who's too different. But when you're similar enough, they are like, huh, that's kind of interesting. I even think that speaks to the the difficulty of theory in general. It's it's inaccessible in a lot of ways. And unless you spend a lot of time like digging into it, if you were just to have a conversation about climate change or, or environmental justice and you were to do it from a completely theoretical perspective with someone who doesn't study these things, but the impacts are still really relevant for them, it's you're not going to get anywhere if you can't like have conversations across those like linguistic barriers, educational differences, um, just different experiences in general. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that kind of brings back to what you were saying about this disconnect between people and policies. You know, it's also between academia and policies and also academia and people. There's just kind of these different silos happening all the time where they're just not communicating. Yeah. Definitely. And just, I think, recognizing the importance of language that will make people, you know, feel curious or be more like an invitation to dialogue versus presenting something in a way that, you know, doesn't feel accessible to them. And that's even something that, you know, with the way that, that different things are discussed, like in DC, uh, we, when like I, I, I came to DC with the perception of, you know, being on, on like ranches where people were like very like, oh my gosh, DC, like they're the worst, you know? And, and so I, I have a lot of, I, I understand how that perception is and which is a great opportunity because then it helps me to be better at communicating or to at least to try to be better at communicating really depending on the audience in different ways to, because it is so important to be engaging everybody. But there are actually like just a couple other thoughts I had that I wanted to maybe share. Yeah. Um, one is, so there's a, a couple of classes that I've taken in grad school or a few that have, that have used like Hobbes at the like foundation of philosophy. And it's so, I'm just, I'm so over him. Like he is, you know, he was like started writing after he was like 
after he was 60 years old, he'd just been through the English Civil War, like incredibly cynical. And I feel like in terms of his, you know, his perspective on human nature coming from this like super trauma informed background, it was so just like, it, I understand why he maybe felt the way he did, but I don't think that he was somebody who was so wise that he should be informing the way that we are still creating the foundation of our philosophy towards in, in like multiple subjects. Um, Cause even just the idea of like anything better, anything above like basic primitivism is like a win, you know, like that's, it's just such a very toxic and, and not a healthy attitude towards humanity. And I feel like, especially as we are really grappling with climate change, which is not just an existential physical threat, but it's also, I really feel like it's like this, like just a spiritual, like, uh, like a really huge, like spiritual challenge as well, because it's, it's forcing us to reconcile some like really, really deep seated traumas and and wait like how have we gone so wrong and I feel like those are the questions that I would like to hear more in IR in general and especially with these you know some of the more mainstream theories it like you know kind of reflecting on how do these theories explain how we could have miscalculated so badly for so long and how do we need to think about things differently for the future and, and that's where I guess like there's some people, um, actually Martin Practel, I don't know if you know him. Um, he wrote this really fantastic book called The Smell of Rain on Dust. And he basically, one of the things he talks about is um, like grief and praise and how you can't really have one without the other. And the idea that grief is not something that's optional. It's something that is necessary. And if you choose not to deal with it, you it doesn't go away. It just gets pushed on to other people. And, and he even talks about that in terms of nation states and like countries that aren't able to properly grieve in the way that they can then lash out um, because of this unresolved grief. Um, and there's actually, can I just read you one like short thing from Absolutely. his book? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so he says, um, only nations capable of the true art of grief, grieving their mistakes and the deeply felt losses they have endured or have caused to happen, can say that they are not pools of emotional stagnation, dressed up in the spoils of ungrieved wars, disguised as good business keeping their unwept tears upon the poor and struggling as the currency of poverty. So he just wow. has, yeah, I mean, he just has like, he, he is incredible. And, and I really think about that a lot. Like what, what is that role of, of grief? And, and if you study the history of any country, like, you, you know, the United States, um, I, I took a taking a Chinese history class right now. And it's like, oh my gosh, like the, the trauma 
of, you know, these people is just so extensive and deep and, and it hasn't been reconciled. And, and then even looking at, um, you know, like Japan and, um, and Korea and all of the unresolved within living memory, serious trauma that exists there. And, and the way that that is preventing them from working together in a more constructive way to counter growing Chinese state influence. And so, you know, I think that the more you look at all these different countries, the more it becomes so apparent that that is something that we need to be thinking about and, and constructively addressing. And that's where also like indigenous theory where you really, you have, it's not just about this intellectual undertaking. And it's the same thing with climate change. It's not just this intellectual challenge. It's like, it's something that you need to have that be coming from that grounded place as well. That's connected to something much deeper and wiser because it's just, it's, it's not, you know, the issues aren't just up here. It's really this, you have to have that full like holistic understanding of all of the things that go into this just really um, just all, all of the challenges and the way they've manifested. I feel like you see that so much just in the history of the United States in terms of like black trauma, indigenous trauma, um, you know, our colonial endeavors in Vietnam and Korea and whatnot. And it's like, we haven't addressed any of that. I think it was Trevor Noah once was, um, who's from South Africa was like, it amazes me that the United States has never had any sort of truth and reconciliation commission to deal with all of this trauma that it has in its like relatively very recent history. And it's like, well, there's, I feel like there's a, a great explanation as to why we're having some of the, the social unrest that we, that we're having today. Yeah. And I've heard about uh, like some nonprofits that, that do like the work they do is just about bringing people in conversation, like empathetic conversation where you're not, you know, going to be lashing out at somebody, but just, you know, pe bringing people in from different sides who can agree to like, just listen and, 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 and I really feel like that is so healthy because I know people, you know, on both ends of the political spectrum and in the United States. And I understand why some people feel just that they've lost faith in, in the democratic process or why they've been more susceptible to messaging from a strongman persona like Trump. And, and I just feel like there's, you know, even like looking at communities like Appalachia and this incredibly rich history, um, but also just like such tremendous poverty, but these are like incredible people. And, um, you know, their, their music culture is incredible and can also be, I think, like, helping to, to find those community-based solutions, the things that are naturally, culturally appropriate for these different communities to be able to 
express themselves and not like, cause I feel like so much is just where we are, you know, uncomfortable. And as Americans, we tend to not be great at sitting with feeling uncomfortable. Like we're very averse to it. So we'll be like, Oh, take an Advil or have a drink or do some kind of like numbing behavior. And, but, but there's certain things that we've seen in different communities and and even like gospel music in the south for in these like in the black churches is incredible and just like the emotion that's able to be expressed and it's such a healthy outlet for that and so I think like we need really need like you know top top down government leadership with that long-term vision but that a lot of the actual work should just be about empowering communities to have better access to the things that are most compelling and meaningful to them. Yeah, no, I mean, it gets me thinking a lot. Um, in the US, you know, we have this tendency where we're like, we wanna solve the problem, but I think so much of what actually just needs to be done is recognition for things that have happened. You know, of course we do need changes and we need um, solutions, but that first step, it's just list, like, as you said, like listening and communi empower empowering communities, that's such an important and I think underappreciated part of it in the US. I don't think I have any questions now. I'm just, my mind is kind of spinning on this idea of trauma and like the collective trauma that this country has and how that's just gone undealt with. And so I'm gonna be marinating on that for a while. And I, I looked up the book um, the smell of rain on dust. And I definitely want to read this. It's yeah. great. Just gets me thinking about colonial trauma as well. Absolutely. You know, that's the first yeah. thing. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot more, especially as we are now recognizing climate change, or the, you know, the administration is, and it's like, okay, so if we're gonna be talking about this more, this is where I think it's gonna be absolutely critical to couple education with meaningful steps for action from the community or like, and, and anticipating that it's scary. Like it's so normal to, it would be abnormal to not be scared if you're learning about all of the ways that climate change is and will be manifesting. And so normalizing like that, it's not only okay to not feel happy all the time, but like healthy. And, you know, when, when you feel uncomfortable, it's, that is like, you know, this wisdom part of yourself telling you something's off and to be able to sit with that and, and, and that's where also I've actually, so my aunt and uncle, um, Bonnie and Richard Schaub, they're like totally amazing. So Roberta Asagioli was a, a colleague of Carl Jung and they went off in, in slightly different directions. And so um, Asagioli has this philosophy of, of looking at transpersonal development. And this the idea of transpersonal development is that there is something beyond the self that, and that's like that kind of that wisdom side of everybody and it's inherent to everybody. Um, 
And it's, you know, it's been demonstrated across different cultures all over the world throughout time when people have written about this feeling of, you know, being a part of something bigger or um, just, you know, feeling like oneness with, with the world. And so there's like different practices that you can do that help to strengthen that connection and so certain things like meditation and other types of practices where you um, are able to like a uh, calm down your sympathetic nervous system you know through different like breathing techniques and all of that but then also be that you're able to just have a place where that strengthens so that you can see, you can observe some of these emotions that may be really intense for good reason, but they help you to not engage as much with them. Um, but you have to engage enough so that you stay motivated and that you understand why there's such urgency to the work that needs to be done, but not enough that you become paralyzed with fear and despair and feel like, well, I can't do anything. So I may as well just, you know, live my life and, you know, try to make as much money in the short term as possible so that my kids will be okay. And, you know, it's, I think we really need to be also helping people to develop those skills within themselves to be, you know, to bring themselves more into the world and engage and to feel empowered to do so and to be part of the solution. This conversation also just has me thinking about how on earth would you go about incorporating ideas like this into like the defense department? It's like in spaces where there are just these very masculine notions and norms of like security and power and being objective and without emotion when really emotion, I mean, is such a natural human thing and it should be incorporated um, into policymaking because otherwise you end up with, you know, things like colonialism and, uh, and like neo-imperialism, like what we see with U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East and what that's turned into recently. Yeah. I mean, some of that work, I think, will be slow, like that's, you know, about bridging language and finding, um, you know, finding those opportunities to introduce certain concepts in a way that makes sense to the people in power. Um, and also it's, you know, finding the people who are naturally maybe a little more inclined to be interested in something like that. And th I mean, there's now been so much research done on the benefits of, of meditation and, um, you know, like building gray matter in the brain. And um, like, so there are some really interesting places where there is some movement in that space. Um, also in, in terms of just how many veterans deal with like PTSD and um, you know, the veteran suicide rate is obviously really high also. And so there are some, some people um, who are former defense department officials who 
who do work in this space, especially for being able to to heal our you know wounded warriors and and help them to develop those skills for coping as well. This has been such an amazing conversation. I feel like I've learned so much. I know I have so much to process and to think about that I, and this is also just making me think about the importance of interdisciplinary work and not just sticking to you, you know, like our political science literature and reading about like philosophy, history, um, psychology, and how important it is to tie all of these things together and not come from this siloed one track perspective. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. Oh my goodness, that was such a great <laughs> conversation. And it totally went in a direction that I did not expect it to go. I was about to say that. Like we were talking about the feelings of grief and trauma. And I was like, I, I thought we were going to talk about something else. But this is so wonderful and interesting. And it's so important. I, th you know, I thought we were going to talk about Arctic policy and whatnot, <laughs> and it's like, no, we didn't directly talk about that, but these, um, like, themes of grief and trauma mm -hmm. and whatnot are so important in colonial and decolonial discourse, and so it's, it absolutely applies, especially, I feel like, um, from the policymaking perspective and things mm -hmm. we should, or policymakers should have in mind. Yeah, and I think there's this whole idea of bringing in emotion into spaces that it hasn't been before and addressing mm -hmm. reconciliation and dialogue. It's it's not something that we think about when we think of foreign and domestic policy because, like, as you said, we try to, like, silo so mm -hmm. aggressively. And it's like, we really shouldn't be doing that. We need to have some sort of extra policy advisor or something for every issue mm -hmm. that just touches on that. And just even, I feel like that has so much to do with, creating a culture and I think mm -hmm. about um, you know when I think about the DOD or the State Department it's like well they're just these very masculine cultures and I wonder if you just implemented cultural changes and Marisol was talking about um, the benefits of meditation mm -hmm. what who knows what would happen if there was like regular meditation sessions or whatnot mm -hmm. and I feel like um, policymakers might listen to this and roll their eyes, but I think we really just need a radical shift in what we, how we think about like policy and what works and what um, best practice is, because clearly best practice is not what what's happening right now. Exactly, and it reminds me. I was listening. This is related to a podcast about Marvel comics and the whole entire it. MCU. Um, and one of the hosts was talking about this idea of pop culture and, you know, we are divided as a society on so many different issues. But in this area, you know, a large portion of at least America and the world really enjoy these movies and superhero ideas and stories. Um, and, you know, maybe we start within the, that defense department and these organizations. Well, we can also start outside and create art and literature and the things that we are like showing the general public. This is OK to feel this way, you know, starting from that side as well. That's also something I was thinking about um, when Marisol started talking about the importance of music mm -hmm. um, and like gospel music in black churches and um, music in indigenous communities and whatnot. And it's like the arts are so yeah. undervalued and underfunded compared to the hard sciences. And it's like, well, these are great outlets to express um, emotion and trauma and develop culture and it's just not 
a priority and no. that really really needs to change it also starts in education then it's kind Absolutely. of um god it's all connected it's all connected <laughs> it's all connected <laughs> oh wow but yeah um that was such a great interview. I know. I'm, just, I'm going to be thinking about it all day long. I'm going to be thinking about it. I'm going to buy the book that she recommended. It's already I'm, in my cart. I saw. <laughs> you were watching me put it in there. It's my bad habit of buying books and adding them to the it's list. It's a pretty good habit. I books. mean, you could have worse habits. Read. Like, I know. Oh, tell me that when I when I move across the country and be like, oh my god. That's fair. That's fair. All these books. <laughs> all right. Well. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, if you have any questions, um, you want to talk to us, you can tweet at us or slide into our DMs at disruptrcp on Twitter or at disruptrcp at gmail.com. Yes, we would love to hear any sort of feedback. Also, I don't know if we've said this before, but anything that we've ever gotten wrong, we, we want to hear and we want to be able to correct ourselves. Mm -hmm. So... Um, any feedback whatsoever, anything you want to hear, if you want to come on the pod, mm -hmm. just let us know. All right. Thank you so much for listening.